Welcome, 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 everybody. This is Islam for Christians, episode 59, Islamic History, circa 621, Sauda and Aisha, the safe choice and the child bride. The artist formerly known as Cat Stevens, who is now known as Yusuf Islam, has one of the most fascinating conversion stories in modern history at least that I've heard. I won't go too deep into it, but it involved a near-death experience and a conversion to Islam that was sincerely mind-blowing to the entire world at the time, including Muslims. Like There was nothing shallow about any of this. He went all in, including abandoning his livelihood, which was music, really for decades just to pursue his faith. And for the purposes of this episode, I want to look at one more way that he went all in, Islamically speaking, that is, and that would be marriage. He would focus on raising a family, and when the time came to marry a woman, he had two potential mates, and he let his mother decide which one would be best for him. The reason I mention this is to just give you an idea, just sort of a mental window into the old worldview of marriage, which is still prominent in many places. I just don't happen to live in one. So if you fully understand the old worldview of marriage, you can skip forward a little bit. But for those who don't understand this, back in the day, a wife was not just someone you were attracted to. A wife was you know, it still is, of course, for many, like I mentioned, someone to run your household and to bear your children. You'll probably grow to like her, especially after you spend a few decades with her. But this isn't first comes love, then comes marriage. It's the other way around. First comes marriage, then comes love. It's the reason the old world marriage model is actually so successful, statistically speaking, because the commitment is to marriage and family rather than simply a person that you fall in love with and could just as easily fall out of love with. And if that's the case, the criteria for a wife is rather different for this type of person in this old world scenario. The motives are very different than modern motives. For example, sex barely registers in traditional marriages. It's just not a factor. And the decision process of marriage is also different. It's almost like a group decision. And of course, the reason I mention this too is Muhammad was in this world. And funny enough, he had a similar experience to Yusuf Islam, or at the time, Cat Stevens. His actual real name was uh, Stephen Dimitri Giorgio, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But... Muhammad was presented with two choices for a new wife by a motherly figure. And in a way, Muhammad also let her decide. Only instead of choosing one over the other, Muhammad just married both of them. Now, each would fill a different role. One would run the household, and one would cement an alliance and a friendship. So at this time, Muhammad's attitude toward marriage had an extra element of course, that Yusuf Islam never had to worry about. And I'm not talking about him being a prophet. I'm talking about 
politics. Abu Bakr was easily Muhammad's best friend, and a marriage to one of his daughters would set that in stone. But we might be getting a bit too far ahead here, so let's kind of step back and look at the bigger picture going into this. So here's the setting. Muhammad is back in Mecca, at least for now. And Muhammad has a pretty large family. And it's not difficult to imagine this household starting to descend into chaos. And so the community would pitch in to help out. Now, one of these helpers was Kaula bint Hakim, who was the wife of an early convert and obviously a family friend. She suggested that Muhammad marry again. I can just imagine her saying this as she's scrubbing some article of clothing or dealing with screaming children and thinking, um, hey, Muhammad, how about marrying someone? I'm not going to do this forever. You know, and she wasn't just making the suggestion. She actually had two people in mind, and they could not have been more different. The first was Sauda, a recently widowed Muslim who had been part of the first pilgrimage to Abyssinia. Now, she was available, and while she was not considered to be a terribly attractive woman, as I said before, that wasn't the driving force behind marriage decisions in this type of culture. Sauda could run a household and would seem to be a suitable companion overall. And Sauda was about Muhammad's age, so more children were probably off the table, but I don't think Muhammad was looking for that at the time anyway. And then we have the second option, and in modern times, a very controversial option. Aisha, who was Abu Bakr's six-year-old daughter. Now, I haven't found much on why Kaula made this suggestion, given all the downsides. The biggest one being, obviously, Aisha was only six, so it's not like they could immediately get married anyway. She was just too young, even by their standards. So it would be a while before Aisha could even be a wife. And Muhammad had a house that needed immediate help. Not in three years, now. Aisha would be basically another kid if she came into his house. And besides, Aisha was already promised to someone else at the time. You know, it was normal for a six-year-old girl to know who she would eventually marry. You know, but it's, the marriage wouldn't actually happen until she was much older. Just like even if... She was six years old, and she's betrothed to Muhammad. It's not like she goes to his house. She stays in Abu Bakr's house for many, many years after that, which is what happened. So the only upside to marrying Aisha would be a cemented alliance with Abu Bakr, which in some ways is strange because I'm not sure those two could have gotten any closer. But it must have been on either one or both of their minds that the community needed to see their ironclad alliance. Or maybe maybe there was something else history just doesn't know about that put their friendship on the rocks. So Kaula suggests these two. And as you know, Muhammad ended up marrying both of them. So how did that happen? Well, with Sauda, the story is pretty straightforward. She was a Muslim and an older woman, and clearly flattered by the proposal. So she said yes, 
probably understanding her main role would be on the domestic front, basically being Muhammad's housewife. I'm not sure she knew that Muhammad would be marrying other women, but that wasn't likely to be a factor, because polygamy was just the norm in this society, and Muhammad's previous decades-long monogamous relationship with Khadijah, while it seems normal to us, in Arabian society, that was the outlier. He was the weirdo, having the one wife. The norm was the many wives that came after Khadijah. It is always interesting to speculate why Muhammad was monogamous with Khadijah, particularly because it's completely unknowable. You know, it's a practice in mind reading from 1400 years ago. It's ridiculous. I mean, anything that you come up with is guessing at best. You know, Muhammad was a wealthy man at that time, but mostly because of his wife. So was it understood that Muhammad was to remain faithful only to her? Was that part of the bargain? And that's the more interesting possibility. Wives were a sign of wealth and status. And Muhammad didn't entirely have that with Khadijah, at least not on his own. And maybe that's it. Or maybe there's the Freudian element to all of it. You know, Khadijah was an older woman, and Muhammad grew up without a mother. Or maybe he simply just didn't want to be polygamous at the time. And who knows, really? No theory is better than any other. But anyway, the monogamous part of Muhammad's life ended with his marriages to Sauda and Aisha. There would be many more to come, although not until after the migration to Medina. And those had to do much more with politics than anything else. And the marriage to Aisha was certainly political, sort of. But it was very practical from a certain point of view, and very clever, because he had Sauda, who was basically a nanny and a housekeeper, perfect for the present, and Aisha, almost as an insurance policy for the future. It's, it's kind of like when a sports team has a budding superstar that is just not seasoned enough to be a starter yet, and they bring in a grizzled veteran to play the position and mentor the young player. When possible, the team will also try to sign that young player to a long-term deal. And marriage is certainly a long-term contract. So again, you have to see the practical nature in all of this. The notions of romance and sex just don't seem to be factors here. Like, at all. I see no evidence Muhammad was even attracted to Sauda. And of course, Aisha was only six, so attraction and sex was off the table for quite some time. And trust me, we'll address that. We'll get back to that. I'm not going to avoid the 800-pound gorilla in the room here. But also, as far as Muhammad was concerned, the marriage to Aisha was preordained by God. Now, as I noted earlier, Aisha was already promised to someone else. And again, I know this sounds bad by modern standards, but try to place your own standards aside for a bit. You know, try to avoid what's sort of a time chauvinism that's so common to the normal superficial understanding of history. This is just how it was done. If you had a daughter, you were thinking about who she was going to marry while she was still in diapers. If they even had diapers, then I don't know how they actually did it. So Aisha was supposed to marry this guy named Mutan, and 
Muhammad knew that. He was aware of it. And apparently, Muhammad had been having strange dreams that were pointing him toward Aisha. He would dream of a man carrying someone in silk, telling him to unwrap the silk and saying, this is your wife, so uncover her. And inside was Aisha. But Muhammad didn't pursue any of this at first, both because Aisha was six, or maybe when the dream started, maybe even younger. And she was also promised to someone else. So Muhammad told himself that if this was from God, it'll happen on its own. And the dreams continued, sometimes with Gabriel presenting Aisha. So eventually, after the suggestion of Aisha from Kala and a conversation with Aisha's originally betrothed guy named Muta'am, Muhammad was free to marry Aisha. And he did it at a secret ceremony where she was not present. You could say Abu Bakr was the real bride at that wedding, really. And I'm sure he was thrilled to be officially related to Muhammad. But Aisha stayed in Abu Bakr's house for a few more years. Now, the more cynical people will see something a bit uglier here. It's possible this was all above board, but it's also possible that Muhammad was using his status as a prophet to muscle someone else out of a future wife. And then there's Aisha, who would have to marry someone nearly 50 years older than her. Why? Because the prophet said so. And if that bothers you, while cautioning that it's not that simple, I totally understand your natural revulsion to all of this, because it does seem like so many religious movements with a charismatic or supposedly divinely sanctioned founder, in these situations, somehow, unsurprisingly, God always seems to decide that the prophet should have all the women. The more notorious examples of this are peoples like, uh, like Jim Jones and David Koresh here in America. And of course, those ended horribly. If you're not familiar with those characters, look up uh, Jim Jones and the People's Temple and David Koresh, K-O-R-E-S-H, in Waco, Texas. You should find it. Now, David Koresh didn't have an age limit either. You see this pattern in many polygamous religious communities, like the early Mormons, and you end up with one old, wrinkled patriarch sucking up all the women while the other men are just told to concentrate on God. And it's a pattern that makes you take notice. Like you're watching a radar screen that says, danger, danger, potential cult on the horizon. And if you want to view Muhammad's actions with that level of cynicism, I get it. I totally get it. You know, personally, I too find celibate holy men way more convincing, particularly for the re the things you're thinking of but i also think it's unfair to lump muhammad in with people like jones and koresh and that like because those people had ugly histories of being domineering and manipulative like pushy salesmen but way worse now muhammad doesn't really fit that personality type he never did his early life the, the type of life he led it just seems a bit too meek, a bit too reserved, a bit too reasonable. You know, people do not just turn into domineering sociopaths at 50 years old. 
They leave a long trail before that. And few people like that manage to stay married, happily and functionally, to a single woman as long as Muhammad was with Khadijah. The force creating these two new marriages seemed to come more from the outside than from Muhammad himself. I don't really see a scheming person set on personal gain here. In this period, Muhammad seems much more like a shell-shocked person seeking some normalcy. And really, outside events were shaping him much more than the other way around. But even if you think it was okay for Muhammad to marry these two women, there is, of course, the elephant in the room here. Aisha was not a woman. She was a little girl. And to be perfectly clear, here's the math regarding Muhammad and Aisha. They were promised to each other when she was six, and the marriage was consummated when Aisha was nine. And that's not really speculation either. Those numbers are pretty solid. They come from countless Hadith collections, and the narrator in many of those Hadiths is Aisha herself, right from her own mouth. Six and nine, it's all over the place. But, of course, that should tell you something too. Think about why that information is so widely available. When thinking about history, rather than, rather than simply focusing on the information that is there, it's important to think about why it is there. Why did that person write that thing? And what does that tell us about their time? Why is this information so widely known among the early Muslim community? Why are those numbers everywhere? Why are they not trying to hide that? Because, at the time, no one saw anything wrong with it. That's why. It's just what was done. And it can be hard to see that from such a different time, such a different place that we live in. And this is the source for what I call time chauvinism. Now, I didn't make that up. I've seen it used before. But I think it's a particularly brilliant term. That time chauvinism is more of a youth-driven phenomenon, I feel, but not exclusively. I have lived long enough to see things that were once considered normal just a few decades ago. Now those things are seen as ugly, bigoted, and evil. And things that were once virtues are now considered vices. And it will happen to you, too. Now, are these young people right about all these things? Maybe. It's probably a mixed bag. But many of these beliefs, these new moral standards, they're only made possible because of the ridiculous level of prosperity that we live in. We can see children differently now. Our children are luxury goods rather than assets. But that's only possible because of our ridiculous wealth. It's not the harsh world of 7th century Arabia, and the societal structure is completely different. Back in the day, marriage was basically the welfare system for women. Marrying a woman like Sauda, for example, would have been seen as an act of extreme charity. And for Aisha, having two men wanting to marry her so early is more likely to have been seen as a great blessing than anything bad. But again, I see the minefield here. You know, this is the third rail of the society I live in, the thing that you don't talk about, the thing that is just 
considered abhorrent beyond all belief. And that thing is pedophilia. Now, girls become women at a much later age now than they used to. And I mean that culturally, not biologically. So from my vantage point and people like me and in my world, it's so hard to see a world in which someone could, with a clean conscience, have sex with a nine-year-old. I mean, I couldn't do it. Even if 10 years was added to that number, I couldn't do it. But it's not about me. It's not about us and our standards. The accusations of pedophilia often leveled against Muhammad would have been baffling in his culture. They would not have understood this at all. Because they would probably say, yes, of course it's wrong to have sex with children. What kind of monsters do you think we are? But a woman who is menstruating is not a girl. She is a woman. That's how they would see it. Now, that's not how I see it, but I'm kind of irrelevant. I come from a later society where taking care of women and children is done in a completely different way, and where childhood extends longer and longer and longer. We draw the line at the age of 18, sometimes higher. The ancient Arabs drew the line at menstruation, which was a normal standard until very, very recently. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying we should adopt that in our time. I think our standards are pretty good. You know, and as a father, I'd like to see the age of consent pushed to 40 or so. You know, our kids are emotionally behind their ancient counterparts to an extreme degree. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it's great that you can just let kids be kids. And... It makes me extremely angry when I see this bizarre and utterly relentless and depraved desire in our culture, particularly among our cultural elites, to turn children into sexu sexual beings. That's not a good thing. Now, with that said, though, an ancient 10-year-old would probably be the equivalent of a teenager in our time if not older. And it's not just girls, either. I mean, teenage boys were sent to war at far younger ages than would be acceptable in our time. Now, war, of course, is traumatizing at any age. But again, it was just a harsher world. Kids used to grow up faster, but now they don't. So it would be ridiculous to impose ancient standards of something so emotionally fraught on modern children who can't handle it. But should the reverse also be true? Is it not unfair to look at Aisha as some type of trauma victim, the way a modern nine-year-old would certainly be seen, and rightfully be seen? So, if it sounds like I'm defending Muhammad here, you're 90% correct. I just have a natural reflex to defend historical people who are being seen through a prejudiced modern lens. Call it time chauvinism, historical colonialism, whatever. But it bugs me when people give simplistic takes on complex historical figures, be it Muhammad or George Washington or Admiral Yamamoto or Julius Caesar. I have a natural inclination to defend people, 
It's something that makes my wife nuts, but it's just my natural orientation. That's my bias. You should just know that up front. Filter all that I'm telling you through that. Now that's my 90%, defending Muhammad on the whole Aisha thing. And it's mostly intellectual and the part of me that is trying to be rational. But there is a smaller part of me, I have to admit, the other 10% that just cannot get past my modern place. I hate thinking of that girl being six years old and knowing her future would be marriage to an old man, regardless of whether she really felt badly about it. And I don't think she did. You know, I hate thinking that nine-year-old girl, just in my mind, seems completely unprepared for what was about to happen to her when marriage is being consummated. And then there's the possibility of pregnancy too. You know, just because a girl has her period doesn't mean she has the body to carry and deliver a child. I think the big hips come way after the onset of puberty. Now, the first period is the start of puberty. It's not the end. You know, the, the development hasn't been completed. Now, for the male version of this would be like sending a boy to war. You know, while he might be technically a man at 12, 13, whatever you want to do, there's an element of physicality that is required for the task at hand. So regardless of whether this is technically a man or technically a woman, are they really physically and shouldn't people really be able to understand the difference regardless of what time period you're in? Now, in Aisha's case, this turned out to be irrelevant in some ways, at least the childbearing part, because Aisha would have no children. But they didn't know that at the time. And there's also another product of the world I live in, which is the natural suspicion of any man who could be attracted to a nine-year-old to perform, so to speak, wouldn't that require being aroused by such a young girl? In modern times, that person would receive a very taboo label from a psychologist, and this is probably the most vocal modern critique of Muhammad. You know, the anti-Muslim polemics decrying Muhammad as a pedophile. Even if it was normal at the time, critics will say, Someone claiming to be a prophet should be held to a higher moral standard than simply being a man of his time. And that's a fantastic point. It really stops and makes you think. Shouldn't Muhammad have been more progressive? Shouldn't he have known how this world would be seen 1,400 years later in our time? Because, of course, we modern people, after all, particularly those of us with college educations, we are certainly the pinnacle of morality the culmination of the arc of moral history with values that will prove eternally pure and correct forever and ever and ever. And yes, that's sarcasm for those who may not have detected it. And there's the problem. It's the modern aspect of that critique, the recency of it, that just makes me want to dismiss it out of hand. This assured purity of our own time, of our way of life, of our moral standards. In American law, there is a concept called ex post facto. Uh, it's Latin, like so many legal terms, at least over here, and it means, I believe, after the fact. Ex post facto laws are specifically prohibited by the United States Constitution. 
And what that means is it's illegal to punish someone for something that, before the new law was passed, was perfectly legal. For example, let's say a state makes cigarettes illegal. When it does that, say, on January 1st, you can only prosecute people selling cigarettes after that date, not before it. You can't go to Joe's bait shop and say, hey, you used to sell cigarettes. It's illegal now. Time to go to jail. If the authors of that law wrote in something like what I would call retroactive enforcement, if that was part of the law, the courts would immediately invalidate that law because it's an ex post facto law. You just can't do that. And similarly, I think we should have the same type of attitude, or at least a healthy humility, when looking at people in the past. After all, we will one day be subject to the same harsh criticisms. I mean, really, can anyone in good conscience and good faith actually honestly look at history and believe in the eternal righteousness of our culture? Here, in our time, this exact moment is when everything's perfect. You know, there will be campuses full of screaming students 100 years from now, decrying some horrible thing we are all doing right now. And we're not even aware that it's a problem. And I think that's the situation Muhammad finds himself in right now, historically speaking. He'd be confused at why people are labeling him a pedophile for having sexual... <laughs> consensual sex within marriage with a person who was, at the time, an adult woman. And even more perplexing, even by modern standards, he wasn't some kind of crazed fetishist with an eye for young girls. Aisha was the only virgin he ever married. And this is from a guy who was married at least a dozen times. And that is kind of extraordinary, given the sexual standards of Muhammad's time. Aisha was an extreme outlier, and probably, not coincidentally, Muhammad would be closer to her, more intimate with her, than any of his other wives. She was probably the only wife of Muhammad's that saw him more as a person than a prophet. In a way, from the modern point of view of marriage, two people in love, sharing everything, and being in love until one of them dies, Aisha was really the only wife Muhammad had. If not for the wild age difference in the presence of other wives, Aisha and Muhammad's relationship would have looked pretty familiar to modern eyes. They had a special bond, there's no doubt, and in the end, Muhammad died in her lap. And I bet he was okay with that. Now, whether Aisha was okay with that, I suppose, would be the key question to an observer from our time. My answer would be, probably. She was basically the queen of Islam. Like, yeah, I know such a thing doesn't exist, but she married into what would become an extremely powerful position. She had access to Muhammad like no one else did. And as time went on, that became more and more powerful. Even after Muhammad's death, Aisha was a key power broker and was given the title of mother of the believers, even though, as I said before, she bore no children. Now, was she interested in all of that? 
Was six-year-old Aisha interested in any of that? Did she care? Did she want power and prestige? You know, what if she had married that other guy? Would her life have been better? It's impossible to say. After all, did she really know anything else? You just can't unravel those kinds of variables and hypotheticals. But I'm pretty sure Aisha would have found all this concern over her to be pretty silly. From her vantage point, I don't imagine she ever saw herself as a victim or an unfortunate soul. You can't know that for sure, but I just really, really doubt it. For the purposes of this episode, though, I should bring us back to the present here, or the time period we're actually talking about. That's what I mean by the present. 621. Aisha is still six years old, and she will mostly be irrelevant to historical events for quite some time. And when she actually does properly marry Muhammad, it will not be in Mecca. It will be in the Muslim's new home. And at the time, 621, the groundwork for what will be known as the Hijra, or migration, it's already starting to play out. And we'll get to that story in the next history episode. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.